Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We're back to Neil Haley's show, and you know what? We talk about New York Times best-selling authors, and we're excited to talk today, but I first want to welcome my co-host, Paul Hollis, author of the Holloman series and uh, CEO of Seniors Publishing. How are you, Paul? I know you're excited about our guest today. I am. We we have one of the best uh, uh, New York Times bestsellers on, on our show here in, uh, in Lincoln Child, and we're excited to talk to him. Yes, uh, you're talking about Dead Mountain today, Lincoln. Thanks for stopping by. Oh, listen, I wouldn't miss it. I'm just sorry uh, uh, you can't see me in person. Um, it's it's I've been blaming technology. Uh, That's okay. Not myself. Let's talk about how did you, how did that happen? Becoming a New York Times bestselling author. Then we'll talk about the latest book. It happened um, in 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 a strange way because uh, um, I know I think a lot of people probably start out to to say I'm going to write a New York Times bestselling book, but you know, and then you sort of stop and wonder, well, how the hell do I do that? Um, what happened? Uh, the the short version is I used to be an editor at St. Martin's Press, and I I tapped a guy named Douglas Preston to write a book about the National History Museum. You know, a, a behind the scenes tour of all the things that go on and all the Indiana right. Jones types who worked there. And that book was called Dinosaurs in the Attic, and it was it was you know it was a success. And I, he gave the best part was. He gave me a tour of all these weird rooms, like the dinosaur bone storage room, which had to be in the basement. Otherwise, the weight would collapse the floor. And the whale eyeball room, you know, and all these things. And and I turned to him and I said, this would make a great thriller. Um, and I was just leaving St. Martin's at that time. I'd always enjoyed writing as a kid, but when you're an editor, you know, you get so sick of reading good and bad manuscripts that is the last thing you want to do. But now that I left publishing, the interest came back, and he and I wrote the book, The Relic, together, just self-indulgently. We never thought it would get published. But you know what? It it took us years, and Doug, Doug gave up for a while, uh, and, it, and it was mine alone. We got it published, and then it was made into a movie by Paramount, and then in paperback, it made the lowest spot on the New York Times list. It was, in fact, it was tied for lowest spot. Um, and then we thought, okay, great, we're bestsellers now, our careers are made. And then we had a dry spell for like five books. And it wasn't until we came back to our character, Agent Pendergast, and made him a serious character we began climbing a bottle of the basement and we started having real success with, with him um, later on in the uh, late 90s. Wow. And so that's amazing. Uh, and so you kind of have hit the gamut of goals of what an author should be, right? Meaning everything yeah. that you check yeah. that box, everything that an author wants. You got well. You know, it's funny because since I was a in publishing, I knew a lot of agents, and so I knew that I could at least get my book read. You know, um, because that's the hardest thing to do. You know, how do you get through all those all those bouncers at the door? You know, you got to get an agent, and then the agent has to like it, and then the agent has to send it to a publisher. An editor has to read it, so on and so on, and get the money. So I knew I could get it read, at least by an agent. Um, and the first couple turned me down who read it. So that, ouch, that was like payback for all the books I had declined, all the hundreds and hundreds of books I had declined during my career. Oh, wow. You know, and that's the, that's the exciting part, right? Getting there and getting the opportunity and all this stuff. So tell us about the latest book. Yeah, the latest book is called Dead Mountain. Um, 
You know, our, our, our this character I mentioned, Asian Pendergast, has we must have Doug and I write both solo novels and, and novels together, and the Pendergast books are our most successful. But he's had a lot of interesting characters come into them, and two of them are these women, uh, Nora Kelly and Corey Swanson, who one is an archaeologist in Santa Fe, and the other one is a fledgling FBI agent in um, in Albuquerque. And we thought, you know, these two characters have been in a bunch of our Pendergast novels. They would make a great team for a series of their own. And so this is the fourth book in that series, and it's really great because we love archaeology, and Doug spends half the year in Santa Fe, so he knows that world really well. And you know, if Nora finds these old bones or a, a dead prospector or something, she can call Corey in to do the, the forensic work. Or if Corey has a case that needs archaeological expertise, she can uh, bring in uh, Nora. And, you know, in this particular case, we took a Russian mystery um, that had happened in the Dyatlov Pass where eight young hikers, winter hikers, perished and then were found naked or half naked and chewed up days later, and nobody knew what happened. And we decided we would transplant that story to the New Mexican mountains. And so it's sort of like, you know, taking the Loch Ness Monster and moving it to uh, Lake Michigan or something, you know, except we figured out an ending for it. Oh, wow. Paul, any questions you want to ask a New York Times bestselling author? This looks like a great book. But Paul, you got your chance. Go. No, this is this is fantastic. I've I've been a fan of yours since since Relic, and uh, wow. so I'm I, I'm Thank looking you. forward. I'm looking forward to this. It that was and it made a, a great movie as well too. But I, I like I like the book better. So. Well, but, thank so I'm you. Looking, I'm um, looking for I'm looking forward to this. As an author, you probably know that uh, a lot of opportunities supposedly come along for making a TV series or a film, but they very rarely ever turn out. I mean, pan out. And we've we've seen so many in the last 10 years that we've had our hopes raised and then dashed again and again. So, um, but we were lucky to get that one done. And thank you for, for being a reader. You know, what's really great about this is we were able to take a true life mystery I mean, you know, it's that nobody knows the answer to um, and transplant it from Russia, which nobody wants to hear about anyway, and put it in, in the Manzana Mountains of New Mexico, where they have an old presidential bunker nobody knows about from the Truman days. They have a big nuclear stockpile at the Air Force Base there. And we're able to bring all these things into a story about archaeology and hiking and you know uh, FBI investigation and and try and entertain people while we teach them about about things. Wow, it's I'm like I said, this is amazing. I want to tell you Paul's story real quick, Lincoln. Please, he, yeah. His book series is fiction, but get this: it's the funniest part is that it's really about his story. He he wrote a book called The Hollow Man series. Not like the Hall Man movie, but this is before that fact. But he was he fought terrorism in the 1970s, and really? he was uh, like a um, you know uh, basically, but he was a red shirt that was in, like in overseas. Kind of explain Paul. But what's so cool about it is that he's a real life Jason Bourne, and his 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 co partner who's in the books literally he saw him kill people. I mean, Paul, I don't know, Paul, maybe you can't tell me that stuff, but go ahead, Paul, and explain that to him. Yeah, I I um I had an interesting childhood, but but anyways, I ended up in the, the Peace Corps and then and then on to uh they found me there, the the NSA found me there basically and and said you want to tour Europe and and I said sure I mean, on somebody else's money, why not? And uh, so what they they wanted me to do was collect and verify information uh, on terrorism and, and make sure that it wasn't actually coming to the United States borders. Um, and and so and I was supposed to collect this information and kind of turn it over to the to the to uh, the professionals, let's say, and and that would you know being for everybody's 
uh, not meaning today is, is the CIA, but uh, for resolution. And uh, but but I sort of got more entangled and, and interested in what I was doing and sort of took things a little bit too far. So so but basically, yeah, I was I was like the red red shirt guy in a Star Trek episode. Uh, didn't know it at the uh-huh. time, but didn't know it at the time. But but um, but it was it was all there. So that yeah, that's that's my story. <laughs> so that's what you mean by a red shirt. OK, now I yeah. got you. Um, yeah. Well, so you went from the Peace Corps to the Anti Peace Corps, basically. Yeah, right? exactly. Then, and, and uh, I, I had, I had uh, actually uh, majored in staying out of Vietnam in college, so, so <laughs> I, I wasn't, I wasn't really suitable for any other type of job. <laughs> Let me ask you a question: um, If you've actually lived that that world or some some segment of that world, how does it feel to you when you read thrillers by people? I won't name any names, but there's there's no shortage of terrorist novels out there. I mean, you mentioned Jason Bourne or somebody, um, but you know, do you, do they do you nod in, in in agreement? Do they upset you because they're unrealistic, or how do you feel about them? Well, I I uh, good question. I I actually look at them as as entertainment, and knowing that knowing that even if it was true. Uh, that they really couldn't tell you the whole story anyway. So and that was, I mean, that that's how I look at at books on on subjects like that. Is is that is it entertaining? Is it keep does it keep me uh, involved? Does it does it make me a part of the story? Um, those are the things that I that I look for in in any kind of novels, but but especially in in those kinds of things with John Le Carre and 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 his and his counterparts, you know. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I look at it as just a sort of a, uh, you know, a, a part of the game, you know, it, it's a part maybe that I didn't experience or, 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 or something of that sort. So I, I just look at it as, as, oh, it's information. I learned something every day. <laughs> I, right. You know, John, John Le is one of my f- favorite authors of all time. I mean, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, I'm yeah. going to say I had to read that three times until I understood everything because he just dumps you in the world and doesn't explain what's going on. You know, you have to learn how to swim on your own, which yeah. is a, which is tough, but it's very immersive. Yeah, now, I, I've actually I've actually been compared to John McCarran. If this is oh yeah yeah, well, so, good but, for you. He's that's, a he's a really good writer, LinkedIn. That's just not been discovered. I've been repping him, and he's been he's been a co-host of all my different marketing services, and it's got him out there more. But the biggest challenge, Lincoln, is basically, you know, our literary agent's going to pick you up. So he self-published all his books. But there's such great stories that everyone who reads a little bit of it, they want his book. So I guess it's never give up type of thing in, in this you know, process. Go ahead. That reminds me so much of where I was like four or five books into it. We'd almost, you know, uh, grabbed the brass ring, but we didn't. And Doug would get depressed and say, oh, geez, another book can be, you know, we didn't sell that many. And, and I kept saying, look at Elmore Leonard. I think that's the guy I used. He had to write 30 books, you know, and it just kept getting better and better. And then we wrote one book where word, the word of mouth finally reached a tipping point. And, Bob, I think that, you know, that's what has to happen. You, you know, word of mouth is, is gold. You can't get enough of that. And if, if that yeah. keeps building, um, that's what sells books. I think. Well, um, we're already seeing that firsthand, Lincoln, by getting those little excerpts out of his books. And these are all older books he's written. Imagine the uh, book four, for sure. But where are people going to purchase your book? It's available on Amazon, all finer bookstores, right? Yes, it is. Um, uh, went on sale on the 22nd. Uh, and um, I hope that, uh, you know, you, you, you get a chance to read it because we... I tried to do just just what you were saying, you know, have it an exciting story and one that's credible, but holds your attention. And uh, you know, you can always do better. And 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 so can and so can Doug and I. But you know, we enjoy it, and that's the most important thing. If you weren't, if we didn't enjoy it, we'd stop working. And and Paul, I'm sure that's what keeps you going too. Is is just lo- love of writing. Exactly. I, I I taught him that he needs to build a TAM from his brand, and that's what I'm working <laughs> on right now for him. Okay. I I built right. mine. That's what I figured yeah. out, Lincoln. I don't get rich off the show. 
I don't get rich off yeah. of anything yet, but I mean, I make my money from my brand and that's the way to do things. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate it, Lincoln. Thanks for stopping by. And do you have a website too in your co-op? Yes, mm-hmm. actually, yeah. I've, I have two of them. There's www.prestonchild.com. And then for my own books, there's www.lincolnchild.com. Um, no. Thank you for having me on, and I wish you both all the best. And um, we appreciate I'll look you for those Lincoln. books, Paul. And we're going to have you on the part two on video. So you figure okay. out that technology. Is there a chance your co-author <laughs> can be on too? We'll make it happen. Yes, sir. Yes, there's a very good chance. This is the first interview he's missed, and he had a a, a commitment he just couldn't break. And you know, it's this is my fault because I thought this was a. Um, just a, a taped uh, radio, quote unquote, interview. So I did it in my Zoom apparatus. I'll set. Oh, up. that's I okay. Was... But it is radio. It is. Yeah. So I'm, I, I'm. I'm what you call the hybrid. We appreciate Lincoln. Thanks for stopping by, sir. Okay. You got you're it. Listening, you're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to Neil Haley Show. I'm excited first to welcome my co-host, Cowboy Three Four Seven. Cowboy, what's going on, man? I know you're excited about our guest, and you know I start thinking about specifically enough interesting guests and things and we our guest today is uh neil seaman he wrote a book called the bold new way of thinking about entrepreneurs accelerated minds and i guess my brain's gonna have to go fast with you neil because who's the faster neil unlocking the fascination fascinating inspiring and often destructive impulses that drive the entrepreneurial brain uh, i think you've already figured out neil i'm like that right you are. I mean, you're the consummate entrepreneur. I, I mean, the little I've read in the actual 10 second uh, intro just there, uh, it was a big reveal. Yeah, no, I mean, it's truly when I'm reading your book and came up with this. What made you want to write this book? My dad, my dad, my dad passed away uh, in 2021. He was a famous dopamine scientist. So he looked at how um, different people reacted to the chemical dopamine in the brain. And I've always been an entrepreneur. So I kind of wanted to marry all the crazy stuff I saw in the world of entrepreneurship with my dad's research. All right, good, Damon. Ask a question because Damon's crazier than me. Okay, and, and I, I think, <laughs> okay. and he's he's ten, me ten years ago, and I'm scared for him because I know where I end up ten years later. Okay, oh, now I'm, I mean, I'm that, there, yeah. but I'm scared for him because I appreciate because, that. Because of, go, ahead, go. No, I appreciate it. I almost feel like y'all went out because my name ain't Neil, but um, I still keep it real. Uh, Neil, man, uh, just from, you know, listening to what you just shared in regards to your father's passion work and his way equity and what he loved to do, right? And the content of this book, right? How, how many more variables of life, of psychology or whatever different genres you may say you utilize to kind of like, you know, correlate with entrepreneurship in this process? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, entrepreneurship is about you know taking risk right but i i reclaim that word because the media like to talk about entrepreneurs as 20 something tech wizards the reality is that the vast majority of entrepreneurs tend to be a little older and they tend to be quieter they tend to be actually shyer socially awkward people who are actually trying to build something of value for themselves, their community, and something to last into the ages. They're not looking for that quick exit that Silicon Valley and Wall Street like to right. talk about. Let's talk the crazy brain. Like you're saying, like this dopamine. So I am not what you just said as an entrepreneur. But I also <laughs> have this crazy brain that no one wants to deal with me, right? You know, yeah. I, I'm soon to be divorced. Uh, you know, other people don't understand me. And I literally have this brain that works so fast. I got back to Pittsburgh, trying to talk to people about this stuff. And they're like, what? Especially with the AI, okay? And I'm trying to tell them, dude, you have an opportunity as an entrepreneur. Anyone could become an entrepreneur today because there's so many opportunities. You don't need to just go and try to compete with me in marketing or podcasting. There's so many opportunities. You just got to be able to, but is it, are, are we just wired differently, Neil? Yeah. So, um, you know, rates of ADHD, six times as high among entrepreneurs, um, rates of major depression, twice as high uh, on the really scary side, you know, um, well, bipolar is anywhere from three to 10 times as high, depending on who you who you cite. 
rates of psychiatric, uh, you know, self-admission for um, suicide twice as high. Um, some really scary statistics um, and addiction, three like heavy addiction, three times as high. So like there are these proclivities. The issue then becomes, are we wired to take risks? Like, are we just naturally that way? I do believe that there is a kind of social Darwinistic behavior trait to entrepreneurs. And we are the fuel of prosperity. Um, and unfortunately, too many people are afraid to talk about this stuff. Good right. right. In regards to like the self-gratification part of this project, you putting it out there for the world to access and learn something from, from your point of view, what is the most prevalent message that you've been getting, you know, after this project that might, you know, promote or promulgate future um, projects in idealism? Yeah, thanks, Damon. Amazing question. So the biggest surprise to me has been young. This really resonates with young people, like mm -hmm. 16 to 30 um, uh, new immigrants, um, uh, like um, people like people are often just not held up in the media as entrepreneurs, people who are from the trades and um, like quieter entrepreneurs, I think. Um, the message to me is, okay, like, you're not like, you're not weird. If you're an entrepreneur and your brain is frenzied, and like, you're actually like pretty, pretty regular for this subtype of people. But you just need to keep that in check and control. And there's different little things at an individual level that we can do, right? So it's called neuromodulation. So there's little mm -hmm. tricks we can do. Uh, journaling, you know, reflection, meditation. Some people go farther down that path. Um, we can also surround ourselves by a group of friends um, who share our common values. Now, let's talk about this, Neil. I'm a former professional wrestler. So I went from, I think what I did in my journey is the strangest journey. Like I retired from pro wrestling in Bremen, Germany in 1999, became a school teacher for X amount of years, taught, got my master's degree in education, taught elementary, high school, Started tutoring business, my first real entrepreneur, even though I consider my first entrepreneur journey in pro wrestling, selling merchandise at shows and making some pretty good money doing it. Nothing huge, but, you know, it showed that entrepreneurial mindset. Then I get involved in this stuff and tutoring and then get back into the entertainment. I think that me going and being a teacher and working for people, it just was never me. It was never my path. Thank goodness I had that path in teaching because that's what makes me one of the best interviewers in the business, in my opinion. And it's because I know how to ask the right questions. So what are your thoughts when you look at people? Because people just don't understand me. I'm sure they don't understand Damon. I don't understand Damon half the time. So uh, <laughs> if somebody else understands, how do we as people, how we're wired, relate to our loved ones? Relate to relate to people that we might consider dating. Relate to people who we want in our life, and for them to understand this is just who how we're wired. Yeah. So the statistics are really powerful. I had one uh, gentleman call me up because the book was profiled in um, in the Toronto Star, and he said, "Look, you know, you saved my marriage because it was the first time where his his spouse, his wife, could see the data." that I was just talking about. Wow. And it was like, wow, this is like an incredible moment for the two of us because he's been trying to explain it. But it, like, unless you have a partner who actually understands it, it's incredibly difficult. Like, and everybody knows it um, as you, 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 you know yourself. I know in the process of being divorced. Yes, absolutely. Someday that'll end. All right. So the last point is where can people pick up your book? Because, I mean, I wish we could talk more. I definitely want to connect. <laughs> um, anywhere, I, want you to just... jump on, I want you to jump on Clubhouse with me. I want you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I want you to connect with me on all yeah. the socials. And we work <laughs> together because you have a great story and a great opportunity. And, you know, it's we're an international thing. Where can people go? Amazon, um, right? It's called Accelerated Minds, Amazon, any physical bookstore, Barnes & Noble. Um, or, you know, go to my website, neilseaman.com. My publisher is Sutherland House. And uh, yeah, you know, Google me too. Um, but I love to talk about it. And it's a message that's resonating. Um, and I really love um, new types of entrepreneurs. Um, and, and, and I think there's a lot more to talk about it. It's a conversation that's kind of taking off. Well, we'll just definitely stay in touch. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here 
where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Hello, welcome to the Women CEO in Reflection podcast. I'm a guest host, Courtney, and I'm co-hosting with Neil Haley. Today we have our guest, Mary the Solutionist. Hello, Mary. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you all for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, excited to have you. So I was reading your bio and it's so amazing and I really, really can't wait to read it. And so I'm going to hype it up a little bit and read the entire thing. Um, So meet Mary, aka The Solutionist, aka Single Woman Joan, aka The Internet Homegirl, a multi-talented force healing from Nashville, Tennessee, Renowned from her corporate and creative event creation expertise, she's a seasoned pro at helping women elevate their careers and spearheading launch and scale projects for diverse organizations. Mary's mission to empower women has fostered a strong community of advocates who champion for her cause online and offline, encouraging women to embrace their confidence in the workplace and beyond. With an uncanny knack for solving any business-related challenge, she earned the name Mary the Solutionist as a testament to her dedication and problem-solving prowess. Her impact reaches far and wide, having been featured in the National Voyager and Canvas Rebel throughout 2022. Currently, Mary shines as the founder, strategist, and visionary of Girlfriends, an influential collective of women focusing on business etiquette and conflict resolution. I just love that. Um, not stopping there, she plays a vital role as an event designer and curator for Girlfriends events, leaving a lasting impression on the attendees. It's not done. We got more, y'all. This is great. <laughs> Mary's influence extends to the realm of podcasting, where she plays a key part in developing women-led podcasts and wine, as one of the three captivating cast members, she delves into the culture and impact of topics shaping their lives, engaging listeners with thought-provoking decisions. But her journey doesn't end there. Mary continues to share her expertise through coaching, consulting for small business owners and corporate organizations. With a heart dedicated to empowering others, Mary, the solutionist, embodies a powerful force of positive change in the business world. You go, girl. You you. You do a lot. So tell us how you became Mary the Solutionist. How did that come about? Where did that start from? Um, I think that started, um, I've always had like friends who were, who had an idea and I'm very good with logistics and organization and time management. So normally if somebody has a problem, I'm, I'm not all about, you know, complaining and harping on the issue. I'm one who likes to get to the bottom of it, like find a solution. And so that's just kind of how Mary the Solutionist was born, I think, just helping my friends with their different projects. And then in corporate spaces, you know, I was being that person um, that people could depend on for finding a resolution. How do you think you became that person of, oh, let's call Mary. Oh, there's a problem. We need to call Mary. Do you feel like this just started in your professional life or do you feel like it started in your personal life? I think it started in my personal life because I was a very bad people pleaser. So <laughs> it can be a good thing and a bad thing, you know, um, finding balance between like not like being a people pleaser and like maintaining boundaries, but also using that to uh, be an asset as like a corporate skill. Mm-hmm. And so that's really good because you help everybody solve their problems. You, I love that you say that this started out as you people pleasing. And so it seems that maybe you have resolved those people's pleasing skills <laughs> and turn it into something that is more productive and something healthy for you. So how do you balance helping yourself and your problems and the things that you face on top of serving other people? For me, I, I'm big on checklists. And so what I've learned is to prioritize the things that I need to do for myself first. Mm-hmm. And then that helps me to kind of put things in a better perspective. Um, when you're putting yourself first, you're worrying about things that concern you. And then anything else after that that you have time for or the mental capacity for, then you can focus on those things. And if that means helping somebody else do something 
then fine, but you just have to take care of yourself first. So prioritization, I think, is what now helps me to uh, resolve those people pleasing issues. Wow. So in people pleasing, where do you think you got it from? Do you know? you have any ideas? Yeah, I, I would say childhood. Um, for a long time, I was the youngest of like all of my cousins and, you know, things growing up. And for a long time, I didn't have siblings in my household. So I was kind of like the baby. And I don't know, just kind of wanted to feeling left out sometimes, I think. Um, trying to fit in with the older kids and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So tell me a little, or tell us a little bit more about like, cause you keep saying prioritizing yourself. So give us details of what like prioritizing yourself looks like. I feel like a lot of people um, who are in, especially women, women CEOs, that's what we're talking about, who are helping other the people and helping them resolve their problems are normally something that we're doing is serving someone else. And we tend to get so indulged in that, that we don't take care of ourselves properly. Like, so our self-care isn't up to par or what we need it to be. So what does prioritizing self-care look like for Mary? What are your, what are your favorite things to do? What are your favorite things not to do? Like me and some friends earlier were talking about taking naps. I'm nap queen. Like, so what does that look like? Um, that's funny. I, we actually just talked about this on my podcast, N1, got on my N1 shirt, um, about self-care and like ways that we do, well, ways that we take care of ourselves. And for me, it is maintaining routines and, um, being kind of ritualistic about them. Um, it helps me stay organized. If I'm not organized and I feel like my whole life is just kind of like in disarray. So maintaining routines, like, um, on the weekend, typically on Saturdays, I will, you know, get my nails or feet done, you know, manicure, pedicure time. Um, that may look like I try to read maybe 30 minutes a day. I'm reading a book on boundaries. Um, just different little things like that, making time uh, for myself, you know, a little bit every day. And then a, like a heavier dose on the weekends when I have more time to just pour into myself. Even if that is just um, I found some new playlists on YouTube that I like that are like um, soft music and I let those play while I water my plants and, you know, just have some quiet, reflective time too. Oh, I love that. Watering your plants. What's your favorite plant that you have that you like to water? So I would say... Is that a hard question? No, I think it's called a calendula, I think. But I got two. Um, I got them from Trader Joe's. Shout out to Trader Joe's. One of my favorite places to go. Um, but they're, they're the same plant, but they look a little bit different. And so that's kind of what I love about them, watching those two grow and unfold and, and get new leaves. So I've been paying a lot of attention to those too. Right. Well, you know, it's like, when did you like, know you'd be an entrepreneur? When did that finally come to your mind? That's always intriguing. Cause you know, we all have that journey, both of us, you know, myself, Courtney has it. When did you have that? I think entrepreneurship kind of happened to me, uh, which is a common misconception. People think that I just like wanted to be an entrepreneur and that's like been my end goal. But honestly, it just happened to me because I started a blog called Single Woman Jones World Domination Book, which was a play off of one of my favorite TV characters from a sitcom called Girlfriends. And um, obviously there's a theme there. My logo is, you know, uh, kind of reminiscent of that. But um, it started with just a blog. And then I started getting feedback from women in the community. Instagram kind of blew up at that time. So I got a lot of feedback. And then I started saying, well, you know, with all my internet homegirls, as I like to call them, let's meet out in the community. And so um, I was doing that. And then the pandemic hit. And I started doing resumes, which is something I had been doing for friends and family for years, even in college. But I started helping people with their resumes online and I needed you know, some extra cash because a lot of us were laid off in the pandemic. And then I started taking all of these different skills. I taught myself how to use the Cricut machine, which is like a die cutting machine where you, you craft, a lot of crafters are familiar. So I started making t-shirts and that kind of blew up. And I just kind of pulled all of my different skills together into this one brand because 
like I said, entrepreneurship just happened to me. It wasn't anything I had like researched and set out to do. But um, I also have family members who are entrepreneurs. So I think it was kind of, you know, already in the works, maybe my destiny. I love that. I love that you said that it's your destiny and your purpose and like you're fulfilling your calling. So that's exciting to know. So it makes me think about the next question I have going back to goal friends, right? Mm-hmm. And so something that you put in your bio about it is that you're helping women with business etiquette. And I just love that because people think that they're entrepreneurs and there's like no business etiquette are the right they don't know like the right way to handle certain situations Mm -hmm. or handle conflict or anything like that so what helped you decide okay this is what I want to do I want to get some women together and I want to teach business etiquette skills so that also started in the pandemic um I am a nerd I love learning I have like this insatiable thirst for knowledge so I'm always reading 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 and I happened upon um this conflict resolution like course and I started reading and I was just like this is very interesting just to learn how to like resolve issues looking at things from different perspectives I had to watch this TED talk about being a good conversation partner and active listening and all these different kind of things so I think that is kind of where that started um yeah I would say so how did you develop it? Did you get your friends together or did you find other women in the community that were business owners too? Um, what, and what are your goals for Gold Friends? What do you hope to see for it in the future? So it's, I think it started with me just like brainstorming. I use, um, I used to write a lot in composition books mm-hmm. and graph paths, all of these different ideas about things that I would see in doing business um as a conducting business as a customer out in the community but then also things that I learned as I was on my entrepreneurship journey and so I started seeing online other women entrepreneurs who were having similar situations especially with um the beauty industry which is what really inspired me um the new wave of beauticians and makeup artists and um the different rules in in the way that they operate in their business models now differ very vastly than what maybe we're used to um, as a little bit older um, generation. I guess we're, we are millennials, but then Gen Z has a different way of doing things. No shade to Gen Z, but um, I think just a little bit. We love you though. <laughs> right, we love you. But you know, just, <laughs> I think that is really getting complaints. People kind of see me like the bad business police. So people will call and tell me, um, you know, these different scenarios and stories or ask my opinion on like, what should I do? How should I handle this? And so I figured, why not pivot that into helping people understand, uh, like marrying that with the conflict resolution things that I learned, like help people understand ways that you can conduct business in a, you know, in a firm but fair way, if that makes sense. Um, my goal, my goals for Girlfriend, We Are Girlfriends is the full name of the business. Uh, my my goals for We Are Gophers is to really just get a like a very sound foundation going because it's relatively new. Um, I do a lot of planning before I launch things, and then I like to test. And when and things I get feedback and revisit, so that's the kind of the phase we're in now is you know reworking some things. So my goal is to get a good solid foundation together. Um, in order to transition all of the um, business consulting services that I have been doing kind of freelance as Mary the Solutionist um, over into this one entity as we are going for you. Awesome. I love it. Yeah, it's such great stuff. And would you say specifically enough, the bi- what have you learned most by business consulting different businesses? And what is What do you see their biggest challenges a lot? I would say... <laughs> The biggest biggest challenge is people peopling, Um, understanding that we're all operating from our own perspectives and being um, what I I would say is uh, we need we all need to learn more to assume positive intent and be slower to take offense Mm -hmm. and consider things from the perspective of business owners, um, especially when you're doing doing Conducting business transactions with uh, business owner to business owner, understanding like the value um, of the person's services that you're requesting and then, you know, making sure that you're giving quality 
to um, the person that you're providing service to. Because people buy the person before they buy the service. And yes. you're going to get those sales first based on your personality. But then yes, you have to deliver, you got to deliver with your 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 service, or you're not going to keep getting more people. But if people people like the person first before they buy, people are going to be yes. more likely to buy someone they like that might even be a little bit not as good as somebody else if they have a better relationship with that person. So people have yes. to understand that that the personal relationship is part of the whole battle to get to get clients, especially if you're talking about client-based coaching versus a product. But it's still people buy the product, especially as well, because they like the person. It's absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff. I love it. I love it. So Mary, this is a lot of information and you shared a lot and we really, really appreciate it. I'm curious to know what information or suggestion or love offerings, that's what I like to call them, would you give to any woman that is an entrepreneur, a CEO of her own life, and just navigating and dealing with people who are out here peopling, um, but still having that calling and passion for it? I would say first find out, figure out what you think about you. Because it takes thick skin to be an entrepreneur and it takes some tenacity. Like you have to be, you have to get really scrappy sometimes. And that's a term that I actually heard in the corporate world, but something I like to implement into my life as an entrepreneur. Like sometimes you got to really roll your sleeves up and, and you can't give up. So, you know, figure out how you feel about yourself, what things you're insecure about, what things you need, you feel you need work on and, and reach out to somebody, find a mentor. Find someone who can, you know, be a source of encouragement, but also provide you with feedback to help you get to the next level. Is there anything that you that you've learned along the way that you wish somebody would have told you? Mm. Put everything in writing. Um, That's a good one. Put everything in writing. I, and I said, that's, that's part of my pre-law background, but also part of just being an entrepreneur and being burned, uh, which, which happens. It's kind of like a rite of passion, passage. But put everything in writing, no matter how big or small. If you're doing a favor for a friend, um, I, one thing that I started doing was even if I do something for free, I write an invoice and zero it out because then that helps the person understand like, even though I did you a favor, there's value in that favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you also can can ensure that people like know like how how much that you're giving them so they can be appreciative. Um, because sometimes people will take that for granted. So I would say put everything in writing. Wow. You know, I can't believe we're running out of time, Courtney. Do you have another question? So I want to just add something and then I'm just going to ask you to um, share where people can find you and stay connected to you because you're doing a lot of things and you have a lot to offer. So we want to make sure that people can reach out to you. But so I know you personally, God has been so kind to me that he has allowed us to develop a friendship. And I remember a conversation that we had a while ago when you were talking, you were giving advice to another business owner and something that you said to them was they were growing in their business, but something that you said to them was, act like a business, like you are a business, operate outside of a business. And I think sometimes when we're starting out in the beginning, we're always like, well, I don't know. It's just, I, well, I I'm, haven't started to do this yet. I haven't done that yet. Uh, and so we're, we're real hesitant and we don't really go, like we don't pounce on opportunities or take opportunities mm-hmm. because we talk ourselves out of it. And so I just want to offer that to the audience as well. That's something that I learned from you is that no matter where you are or what space that you in, like if you say that you're a business owner, then act like a business owner. Um, so Mary is full of knowledge, y'all. And we really appreciate you being here today. So tell the people where they can find you. Thank you all again, Courtney and Neil, for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share about my business here. And, you know, um, I I mean, I just, I, like you said, I do so many things. So it's more of like, what doesn't she do? So if you need to figure, you need to find that out, you can reach me at singlewomanjoan, J-O-A-N dot com. That is my website. And also you can email me at info, I-N-F-O at singlewomanjoan.com as well. Those would be the best ways to reach me. Uh-huh. Um, and and Wine Podcast is on YouTube, Apple Music, and Spotify. 
All right. We appreciate it. Thanks again, guys. That was a great show again. Take care. Amazing. Thank, Thank you. You, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Women CEO in Reflection. To reach out to one of our guests, their contact is in the description of the show. Do you want a total mindset transformation? Apply to Mindset Warrior, The Art of Intentional Thinking, my personal coaching boot camp at IamAMindsetWarrior.com and schedule your call with me today. Thank you. We're back to Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome the program. First, my co-host, Paul Hollis, author of the Hollow Man series and owner of CEO of Seniors Publishing. How are you, Paul? And I know you're excited about our guest today. I am. Uh, yeah, we have a, a great uh, uh, person today of, of interest to us, a content creator, uh, author, um, uh, and, and sorry, Anissa Asabi, right? Did I say that right? You sure did. I'm sorry. Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming by. Appreciate it. So tell me how this all started with author. What did you decide? We always wanted to be a writer growing up? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was a dream that I'd had since I was a young kid. Um, I was always that kid, you know, with my mom's laptop writing on all sorts of scratch paper. And then the book that I ended up publishing, Finding Chaz, was actually an eight to 10 year process that I started while I was being homeschooled in middle school. It was just a project that I was doing um, for my English class. And I wrote the first draft. It was about 200 pages in 2012. And I actually forgot about it for several years, came back to it during the pandemic with some adult wisdom, lived experience, and really tied up all the loose ends. So it's a nice fusion of those two periods of my life. And through that process, so it took a long time. What did you see after time and putting it down, then coming back to it? What did you, as a person, you're writing from you know that age to now, writing did you see the immaturity did you see maybe you saw the characters differently definitely yeah i mean the world changed a lot in between 2012 and 2020 um and obviously i grew up a lot as well and so the age that i was when i began writing it was pretty close to the age of the main characters in the book i was in the eighth grade the characters are in their freshman year of high school so i think the outlook of the narrator is very very um authentic it's a very genuine perspective um but it was a little bit immature so it was a very cool process to be able to come back, see like the original perspective that I'd had, and then kind of be eight years down the line and infuse some of that into there as well. So I think it's a unique take considering it's almost like two different people wrote it at the same time. No, it definitely sounds like it. And the thing that you bring to the table is that you're looking the creativity. So you tweaked some of it, finally got it out. What? How excited were you when you finally had that book out? It's got to feel good. Oh, yeah, it was definitely surreal. Um, one of the first people that I told was my third grade teacher. Um, she had been so supportive of me as, at a, from a young age. And we'd ended up reconnecting when I was in high school. And she'd encouraged me to keep writing because she saw that I had kind of, you know, focused my attention onto some other projects. I was doing kickboxing. I was just um, doing the Running Start program. So a little bit busy for writing at that time. And she reached out to me and she was like, you know, it's amazing all the things that you're doing. But don't forget that you're a very talented writer and you should continue with that. And that really inspired me at the time. Um, and so when I got to reach out to her with a completed manuscript, I hadn't told her anything. I was just like, hey, like, this is what I've been up to. Would you like to read the manuscript for my young adult book, Finding Chaz? She was like over the moon. So I think for her to get to see like the impact that teachers can really have on people's lives was a really cool experience as well. No, it definitely seems like a very cool experience. It's got to be something that... You feel so, is there other books in the works for you? Yeah, I'm actually working on a sequel currently to Finding Chaz. Um, the reception has been really positive. A lot of people are like, oh, you know, what's next for these characters? And I have like a whole bunch of ideas for them. So that's in the works. I'm also adapting the first book into a screenplay. I've been working with a mentor. Um, not exactly awesome that the writer's strike is going on <laughs> right now. <laughs> Um, but I've been working with a mentor to adapt it, really delving into that world as well. So kind of wearing multiple creative hats at one time. Do you have somebody that's going to pitch it after you have a screen? That's yeah. the goal. Yeah. Is that he's going to um, help me develop it and then, you know, show it to his agent and see if it's something that a network would be interested in. Oh, that's so. great. Great. That's, that's exciting. Uh, what other projects are you doing? Are you doing anything else that Paul was mentioning? You do other things as well. Um, in the past, yeah, I have. I've done uh, content creation for meme pages. I developed a drinking game several years ago, a card game um, called the Karen Drinking Game. So kind of just getting my paws on like any creative project is my like 
passion. Um, but currently, yeah, it's the screenplay and the sequel to Finding Chaz that are really getting the majority of my attention. <laughs> keeping it going, keeping it. What do you think that people are going to want, especially if that ends up someday as a series? What do you think the big, big point of that's different compared to other stories that will get people really interested in this? Yeah, I think Finding Chaz is unique um, in a number of ways. Um, the first is that it takes place in the early to mid 2000s. Um, so I think there's a lot of nostalgia currently for that part of history. Um, not that long ago, but the world was vastly different than it is now. Um, you know, those interpersonal relationships seem to be a lot stronger when we weren't, you know, constantly connected via social media, texting, Snapchat, TikTok, whatever else you want to, you know, call it. So those high school bonds that we would see in the 2000s look a little bit different than the youth of today. And I think people are really yearning for that. Um, also, the cast or the cast of characters in Finding Chaz is really diverse. But I think it's diverse in a way that we haven't seen before, because these are like multifaceted characters that aren't just defined by one aspect of who they are. You know, we have multiracial characters, we have LGBT characters, but that's not their one identity. You know, it's a complement to the story instead of the whole story itself. So I think it's a really interesting take. Where Where's best people can buy the book and stuff? Where can they go? Um, it's available Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and several local bookstores in the Washington State area. So pretty much anywhere books are sold, it can be requested if it's not already on the shelf. Uh, we appreciate it. Thanks again for stopping by. Great stuff. Thank you. Yeah, thank All, you. Right. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show. My guest today is David Hollenbeck of Hollenbeck Leadership. I mean, my co-host is David Hollenbeck of Hollenbeck Leadership Celebrity Host. How are you, David? I know you're excited about our guest. And it's always great when somebody's giving back so much. This is just like a tremendous mission isn't it yeah this is this is pretty awesome chris collins um you know we're going to talk about hope's mission and and hope is an acronym for housing our people everywhere so thank you uh for allowing us this opportunity to to speak with you chris oh thank you for having me i'm i'm very thankful to have ran into him this morning and have the opportunity to be here this afternoon. It's it's my honor. So thank you. Well, Chris, we'll get right to the first question. David will go to the second one. But let me kind of tell you that I created after I left Clubhouse, which I'm back on Clubhouse again, is my my podcast, radio show, TV show as a community. And we have really built a huge community of people that we interview as we get an opportunity some days to have like 20, 30 interviews a week and then put it all on my radio show and plus put them out as podcasts. So we're producing a ton of content. But let's just jump really quickly, Chris, into what's happening. And let's talk about specifically, how did you get involved in this mission? And tell us your background. Well, um, I started this mission because of greed, quite honestly. I, I walked away from profit in 2005 because of a greedy partner. And I, I told everybody that I was just going to give my life away. No one will ever take it from me again. But I didn't realize how literal that was. But while I was sitting on my couch for a month in August in 2005, Hurricane Katrina happened. And I knew of this machine that would make steel studs. It made 65 feet of material a minute. And I wanted to go recover that disaster and rebuild it. And I built a home down there in 2006 that saves $11,000 a year in insurance versus a wooden one right where the eye came across in Purlington, Mississippi. And it's right on the water, 10 foot on, you know, off the ground. But it was more that was to get me started. You know, um, I wanted to recover the entire Gulf Coast, but it's still destroyed. Okay, so there's a lot that's happened in the in the past 18 years, but we can get to that. But yeah, that's what got me started. Okay. Now, where it it looking at your website, it appears that you're you're building these uh, small home communities uh, to to help house the homeless. Um, was that was that really your vision when you started this? Well, the one thing about the tiny villages is this: um, by putting them together. They can become transition, you know, they're transitional housing right now. OK, now, once we move people out of those, they become Airbnbs. You know, once we get the community right and there's not a problem, now it's an income. So now it's a way to sustain 
to make sure that the problem never comes back. But if we engage with our children in the community and show that they are the solution to every adult's problem. Now, when our kids push an enter button on the computer after designing a house and an adult goes to work, now they're starting to teach. So kind of delve into that and I'll go back. I know, David, you have a question too. So how are you making them Airbnb? So the homeless move in and then they get their lives in order or what's happening? How's that work? The homeless move in, we get their lives in order. We give them the support they need individually. Every person gets individual access to what they need. They're not going to be put in a group setting and say, all of you have to do this. Every person is an individual. You can't, I'm never going to have a thought for you and no one's going to have a thought for me. So we need to think of of what they're thinking of and how we're going to be able to work with them because every person is an individual. But as as far as the Airbnbs, once we fix the homeless problem in the community and they're not needing these houses for that, now we can either take them apart and build something else or we can take and rebuild or um turn it into an Airbnb, a luxury place for people to stay. You know, like in my city, I wanted to do a tiny village and I wanted to turn the whole community into an Airbnb because we have so many colleges where the parents come to our city and they would like a nice place to stay closer to campus, stay right there. Well, this would be it. And it's a way that now those, those parents are supporting what their kids are working with the kids in the community to do every day because it's the college students that are working with the youth younger than them with all of them utilizing each other and, and doing something positive with a purpose, you know, just having one common goal, get our people off the street and on their feet. Just being the beast thing. Can can you talk a a little bit about how you're getting the children involved with, with designing these homes? Yeah. Um, you know, our kids are wonderful with, with computers and things right now. And an AutoCAD system, if they design something, you know, it'll tell them what it'll take to pass code. And every time they push enter, it'll test it and it'll test for snow load, wind load, all that stuff. And when that AutoCAD says that it'll go, well, these are the cities of the future and they're it's the children's future. It's not mine. So, I want, I want our kids to be able to have a say-so what it looks like. And this is, this is the way to do it. Um, and, you know, working with the kids, you know, I did a tiny house with a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old. They're brothers. They had never built anything in their life. But they came out and spent two and a half hours with me in a parking lot and built a tiny house that was 10 foot tall to the, to the ceiling rafters. And then it had a six-foot tall rafter system that gave a queen size bedroom up there but it was a hundred square feet 10 by 10 and they built that in two and a half hours and they were amazed because i took one of the trusses and tried to destroy it i was flipping it over and slamming it to the ground and then i turned around and put it up on the building so i want our kids to be able to see what they can build but also if they build it they they're not going to destroy it they're going to be proud of what they've done you know, I was a drywall contractor and when I done 3000 homes, I could, I was proud of those homes because I done a quality job, not a quantity job, you know? So I want people to enjoy what they do. And once, once they find that joy, they'll never work a day in their life. So how do, how do you, uh, how many villages do you guys have? Well, we're working on a project right now. Um, I've got one, it's a tent village. It's actually going in, in, uh, Florida, working with the pot, the guy that's been, I kind of got in this podcast with, he's been doing a podcast for nine years and it was called it's my house, but he has now changed that to DIY housing TV. And we're going to start airing what we're doing. We look to do a community a month from this point forward. We're working on a project in Georgia that's 41 acres and it will be a music venue an arts and crafts venue as well. But we will build 100 tiny homes on that property. It'll be a veterans community and they will be building steel frame homes for homeless vets all over the country as we ship them to other places. And the other one will be for domestic violence uh, victims, women and children. 
for them. That, that's awesome. I we've got to have a conversation offline. I'm uh, involved with several veterans organizations here in Orlando, so uh, yeah, what, that's actually one of the things that we've been talking about at at a lot of the meetings that I, I go to is um, really the we've been discussing the stand downs that we have the community stand downs where the sheriff's department or the fair, uh, the fire department or the police department in the community will go in where the, the homeless vets are and bring them out, get them haircuts, showers, all that stuff. And, um, you know, one of the things that we've been discussing in, the, in these meetings is the, the housing situation and, and how to help. Lucky land casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha. In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.